Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm of course your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 112th episode, our returning guest is Sarah Kensinger. You first heard Sarah Kensinger on episodes 70, 80, 89, and 99. Sarah Kensinger is best known for her reporting on St. Louis, her coverage of the 2016 election, and her academic research on authoritarian states. She is currently an op-ed columnist for the Globe and Mail, and she was named by Foreign Policy as one of the 100 people you should be following on Twitter to make sense of global events. Her reporting has been featured in many publications, including Politico, Slate, The Atlantic, Fast Company, The Chicago Tribune, Teen Vogue, and The New York Times. Her new book, The View from Flyover Country, Dispatches from the Forgotten America, was published April 17th and is now a New York Times bestseller. And now on to the show. Hello? Hey, Sarah, it's Rob. Hey, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me again. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, well, first of all, I could uh, congratulate you on becoming a New York Times bestselling author. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, I just finished reading the book, and it's great, but, I mean, I'm kind of reading from the dates it was published, and you saying that you would originally published these all these years ago. It's been quite a journey from the time it was originally conceived till becoming a New York Times bestseller, so. Yeah, yeah, no, it's sad to me in many ways that these essays still stand up, because the problems that I described, you know, not only did not get resolved, but um, became much worse under mm-hmm. Trump, and unfortunately, I think will continue to become much worse. Yeah, yeah. Does it feel weird to still be talking about stuff from so long ago? Because I, I know I read stuff I wrote years ago, and I keep wishing I could change things that I wrote and <laughs> switch them around. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely weird. I mean, one of the strangest things is that at the time I was writing those essays, um, which was between 2012 and 2014, you know, I felt like our country was in crisis. I felt a sense of urgency. And then now I look back at that era, and I don't want to quite say with nostalgia, um, because that's not true, but more, you know, this was a time when a lot of the problems that we're facing now could have been fixed um, if those problems had been acknowledged, if people had been proactive. And, of course, there were people out there trying to fix them. It's not like everything was completely avoided and ignored. But, you know, this situation festers and sort of burns for so long that it eventually leads to something like the emergence of a demagogue, um, a collapse of checks and balances in, in the situation we have on our hands now. And that's that that was frustrating and rereading it. Like I had to read the whole thing out loud because I did the um audible version, oh, <laughs> which wow. is, you know, a super <laughs> weird experience. It's like fifteen hours of just like reading my own writing by the end. I was like, Oh my god, like I can't believe people are gonna read this book and not like slip their wrists. It's so depressing. But um, you know, but it's still like I now know every word by heart and uh and I was like, Oh man, you know, I I wish I mean, I've been feeling this way for years. I wish people had acted sooner, you know, and of course it's still feeling that today. Right, right. Well, absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things I really like that you talk about in this book is kind of the uh, the jobless recovery. And they, they keep talking about, oh, things are getting better. And, you know, you and I live in the Midwest, and, you know, we see all these bombed out places that are abandoned and not really going to look like they're going to come back. And it's like, what recovery? I don't I don't see yeah. a recovery. And it's like, they're talking about oh, jobs, yeah. jobs, it, 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 you know. <laughs> <laughs> the jobs that you can't live on, you mean? <laughs> yes, yes, that's what's so frustrating, because underneath, you know, all of the horrors that we have to deal with now that are new, you know, the 
threat of nuclear war, the Nazis, the children being snatched from their parents mm-hmm. by the state. You know, underneath all that are these day-to-day issues that, you know, the majority of the country have has no savings. Uh, most people can't pay their bills. Most people have enormous debt. There aren't opportunities for you, whether you went to college or you didn't go to college. And, yeah, I mean, in places like where we live, you know, where you drive in inner cities that have crumbled for decades and you go into suburbs and you find endless abandoned malls and emptied out strip malls and, you know, just emptiness, you know, lots, things, you know, grass growing over pavement. And when I bring people in from out of town that come from, like, New York or D.C. or something, like, they're they're so startled by this. But I'm like, you know, this is pretty typical. Like, this is what a, a typical city outside of these very few, you know, extremely prosperous and extremely expensive places looks like in America now. And uh, it's just a reality that it doesn't get, um, you know, per- portrayed that much, I think, on the news um, or to the general public, even though we are the general public. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I really appreciated that you touched on in the book was uh, the plight of adjunct professors, because um, I think I mentioned before, my wife was a religious studies major, and she Actually, her plan was in college to become a professor, and then, you know, partway through, she kind of figured out what you talk about here is that it's a big scam, and it's basically like, you know, you're buying a lottery ticket that one day maybe you'll be a tenured professor, and you're just going to live in abject poverty for years up until then. So it, it's, that's really frustrating because it seems like being a professor, ooh, that's a you know, right. you know, very distinguished career. And it's like, but yeah, maybe if you get it, if you're one of the lucky people that lands one of those jobs, and otherwise, good luck. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I had switched myself um, from journalism that collapsed in the early 2000s uh, into academia. And, you know, what I kind of liked at the time, um, you know, I had a full ride to watch you. So, like, that was all paid for. And I liked that kind of stability, you know, getting a statement. But I knew that once you got an academic job, it's like, finally, here's some sort of career path with um, job security. And, of course, that collapsed um, two years into my own doctoral studies. You know, it collapsed in 2008 with the, with the general recession um, and never recovered. But, yeah, it, it is like winning a lottery ticket. Uh, it's amazing to me that so many years um, after I first started writing about that, the problem hasn't gotten better at all. I think the number of adjuncts has actually gone up. I think it was around 70% uh, when I was writing the best because now it's more like 80. Um, you know, you have a backlog of graduates who've never been able to find work. And, you know, one thing that I think is really remarkable is you look at fields like the humanities or the social sciences, and, you know, people are always like, what can you do? with that degree. Um, you know, I, of course, have put my uh, degree, my expertise in authoritarian states, unfortunately, to studying Donald Trump, which is really <laughs> not what I uh, set out to do as a plan. But, you know, I look at, like, one of the biggest issues facing us, which is social media and this complete restructuring of uh, how, of communication and politics and how we interact um, and of privacy. You know, all these issues that people who have expertise um, in the humanities and social sciences uh, could really understand in different ways. And it seems like a problem that would solve itself. Like if these tech companies would hire people, you know, with this background to maybe try to address some of these topics, to not just have them addressed by people who study algorithms or computers or, or, you know, quantitative data, but bring this qualitative aspect, 
And, you know, there's no kind of, I don't know, thinking in that way. I just sometimes think in my head, I'm like, you can solve two problems at once here in a really positive way, but, you know, that's definitely not the direction um, our country's going in terms of how they deal with things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, on a little bit of a lighter note, I did see you on Late Night with Seth Meyers, and I have to ask, what what was it like meeting (laughs) Ice-T? It was great. He's so nice. Um, He was backstage. And, like, the thing is, is, like, my mom is this huge Ice-T fan. She, like, she watches on a Law and Order. It's really funny because when I was like 12, I bought the Body Count cassette. I'm sure it was on cassette back then. You know, it was Cop Killer and I was playing it and I was like all into Ice-T and she was like pissed at me because it's just all profanity, which is ironic because my mom swears like more than anyone. I probably heard more profanity for her from her than from Ice-T, but you know, now her, she's like an old lady who loves Ice-T. <laughs> she was really nice and took a photo with me and I got the photo framed and I gave it to my mom for Mother's Day. <laughs> that, was, that was definitely like the weirdest Mother's Day gift I, I've ever given. But he was so nice. I told him my mom is a really big fan of his, of his. And he was like, oh, is she here? And I was like, you know, no, she, she lives in another city. He's like, oh, I love meeting people's moms. Like, it was just, you know, <laughs> the iced tea of 1991. Like, everything about it. I kept thinking, like, 1991 me would be so confused because it's like I'm going on late night television with Ice-T, who's now beloved for playing a cop on television, to talk about Donald Trump being a secret asset of the Kremlin. I mean, just everything about that sentence is insane. And so, you know, it's just like my life took a really weird turn, but I guess it's true for, for a lot of people, yeah. including Ice-T, I suppose. Oh, sure, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. No no one more than Ice-T, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, but yeah, I also saw you on uh, Morning Joe, and uh, I appreciated the little uh, comment you had about how they were like, oh, well, we know how Trump got elected. You're like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, you do. <laughs> sure you do. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they totally understood what I meant. And, you know, I mean, I am glad that they finally seem to realize that Trump is an extremely dangerous autocrat. You know, I don't quite know what to make of them. Like, there are some people, I mean, mm-hmm. many people um, in news that I'm furious at, you know, mm-hmm. very angry to this day about their role in propping up Trump, uh, especially in 2015-2016. And, of course, Joe and Mika were two of the people who did that. They were also openly being blackmailed by Trump, being threatened mm-hmm. by Trump. You know, mm-hmm. he was saying he was going to reveal details of their relationship, um, you know, which is basically like a open secret. Um, but you know, that makes me feel a little more sympathetic to them because I don't know quite what they were dealing with. And we know that Trump threatens and his goon squad, especially Michael Cohen, threaten people's lives. You know, they threaten journalists with physical harm and with violence. And I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if that was something that entered into play for them. At the same time, though, I wish that there was some sort of, you know, reckoning moment that, that people would share and apologize um, for the damage that they did. Because if it weren't for the media, uh, we likely wouldn't have, you know, babies put in cages in concentration camps on American soil right now. And so, you know, I'm always going to be furious at them for that. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, we, we've been uh, dancing around it here, so we may as well just get right into it. So I, I really wanted to talk about the article that you had in the Globe, Globe and Mail about the child separation policy. And one line that jumped out to me was, uh, you say, they, meaning the GOP, let Mr. Trump choose what the United States is and to make his alternative facts reality, to re- rewrite laws to suit his needs, needs, since he knows the morally weak will make excuses rather than confront their own complicity. I mean, that's that's the whole ball game, it seems. 
times. And, you know, we've talked about the complicity of the congressional Republicans before, but I just feel like this was a new low. I just, I haven't ever seen them sink quite this low. So. Oh, yeah. But they won't stand up on this. Um, you know, when I really truly feel that the majority of the country finds this repugnant, I think even, you know, you see polls that say a, a slight majority of Republicans were in favor of this policy. I'm guessing that they're not getting accurate information about what that, rep- that policy is, because um, most people aren't Republicans, and those who are tend to get their news from places like Fox, um, which are really playing down the horrific details of that. And so I, you know, I don't think that we've changed so dramatically as a country that we find um, jailing children and ripping children from their parents acceptable. So it should not have been hard uh, for Republicans to stand up, you know, and caucus with the Democrats and support, uh, you know, the closure of this uh, in a very forthright um, and urgent way. You know, a lot of them talked this sort of game about this is not who we are. And it's like, this is who we are because it's who you are letting us become. And you are bowing to the whim of Trump and his administration and people like Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller. And, you know, they have the choice. Like, people like you or me, like, we can do so much. You know, we can talk about it. We can expose it. We can try to promote and help uh, the organizations that are trying to stop it. But we can't pass a vote. We can't pass a bill. We can't vote on, uh, you know, who represents us until November. But there are people who could just put this to a stop right now. And instead they get on Twitter and they just, you know, bleat about, oh, it's so sad what's happening. Trump should really stop this. And I'm like, you should really stop this. Like, you know, Jeff Flake, John McCain, you know, and, and some of the Democrats that were late on, on getting on board as well. Like, it's extremely frustrating because they're acting helpless when they're really just cowards. And, and that's, you know, at the heart of the problem. They're, they're too cowardly and intimidated uh, to stand up for the weakest people of all, which are, you know, children who don't even, you know, speak English, who are taken away from their parents and who are, you know, emotionally traumatized. It's like, if you're not going to stand up for them, like, my God, you know, who are you? <laughs> what kind of person are you? They're, they're, they're party of family values, didn't you hear? I mean, they, they're yeah. fam- every child deserves a mother and a father, right? Come on. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, it's amazing to have grown up, you know, in the 80s and 90s, especially when that was really kind of beaten down our heads, like, as a result of the rising divorce rate in mm-hmm. the 70s. You know, there's the backlash of family values, and they're completely content ripping these families apart, um, which just shows the extent that they do not see these migrants uh, from Central America as human beings. You know, the dehumanization uh, that Trump has been steadily pushing for years, and others, of course, as well, has taken some effect, I think. And I don't think it's taken effect on the general American public, but um, it's taken enough of effect on the on the legislature that I think they felt like they could get away with this uh, without massive public pushback and I'm glad that that pushback did come but you know they still haven't resolved the issue. Right and you know I saw that poll where it was like 50 something percent of Republicans are okay with this policy and, and like you mentioned it's it's basically just the most like if you've survived and, and held on this long you, I, you, what, what won't you put up with at this point and I feel like quote unquote reasonable Republicans are, are they, don't, they don't have a place in this party anymore so I mean do you think that people who were Republicans should 
should stay Republicans and try to change it or just abandon ship at this point because it seems like just the wor- the worst people ever are the only ones left because it's like you're they're okay with this. So yeah, I feel like they. I mean, that's up to them. It's, sure. You know what what has the best pragmatic effect is what they should do. But at this point, it does seem like abandoning ship has the greatest effect. You mm-hmm. know, like Steve Schmidt, who had worked for McCain recently, right. mm-hmm. um, abandoned ship uh, because the, the the Republicans in the party aren't willing to listen to any of the reasonable people. Like, they're not having any effect in changing the par- the party from within. It's been completely taken over by Trump, by the Klan, um, you know, by the most extremist elements. And, you know, I, I think that's fine if they want to leave. I don't know how they could associate themselves um, under that banner, but I think it's less important, you know, what party people identify with than just what they do in general. You know, how do they treat people? How do they handle these issues? How do they mobilize around these issues? What kind of um, policies are they going to try to enact if there are people running for office? Like, that's more important than any labels, because I think we've really moved beyond our traditional two-party system um, into a whole new realm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a decade, you know, assuming we're still a democracy um, and don't just have one party, that a decade we have, you know, multiple parties like maybe four viable parties. I think that might be healthier um, in some ways. And, you know, our, our system's broken. I wish that we had a, you know, parliamentary-style system at this point uh, because this unchecked and, you know, monopolized power that Trump has uh, is very unnerving, and he wouldn't be able to be as successful if it was, you know, more equally uh, distributed throughout Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the, the assumption, of course, would be that the that Congress checks the president um, that was always the historical assumption for America, and that assumption has completely failed um, mm-hmm. under his rule. So. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, I mean, the administration's explanations, like, they didn't even make sense with each other. I mean, it's just in the past few days, it's been one thing after another. First, it's, it's not happening, period. Not It's just not happening. And, okay, it's happening, but it's not so bad, and it's like a summer camp, and also justified by the Bible, and then, okay, it's fine, it's happening, it's bad, but Obama did it first. It's his, his fault, and then it's the parents' faults for doing this, and then it's the Democrats' fault for not agreeing to use these kids as a bargaining chip to pay for the border wall instead of Mexico. Then, okay, it's happening, it's bad, but we're going to not separate families anymore, but we're not going to, you know, do the ones that are already separated, we're not going to do anything about them. Uh, It's like they want all the cruelty of it without having to have any of the responsibility for the consequences. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that they were kind of testing the waters. I think they thought that this would go over a lot better than it did. Um, and that was one of the things that really failed this policy because, you know, I've studied other authoritarian states, um, you know, which are notorious for using child labor. Um, you know, for example, in Uzbekistan, they have child cotton pickers, and that actually stopped um, due to international outcry, a very rare win uh, for human rights activists. Uh, in Uzbekistan, you know, Russia is notorious for its orphanages, which is abused and abandoned children. And the thing is, is like these states usually try to cover it up. They do things like come out, quote the Bible, and bragging um, and being proud of a really vicious and inhumane policy about children. They'll be proud of a vicious and inhumane policy about adults. 
you know, that, that people that aren't so objectively innocent and helpless. They usually do not target children as part of a propaganda initiative in this way. Like, we're harming children, yay, you know? And that's what they were doing. And I think that, um, you know, once the backlash came, uh, they, they began to struggle and say, you know, all the things you just said, it's no different from Obama or not really doing it um and it's just i don't know i mean it's, it's been a very like it's been a hard week uh to kind of process this and the thing that worries me is i don't think that we're getting the full story um you know we still don't completely know what's happened uh to girls and last night we finally found out what was happening to babies um you know the babies are being put in internment camps and then today of course they announced that the families are going to reunite uh it's not even clear whether that's technically possible possible after this time, um, you know, there because people have been deported, there are children in America and parents and other reasons. It's a humanitarian, uh, yeah, it's just beyond a disaster. It's one of the worst things I've seen in my lifetime. Um, and, you know, and it, and it could have been stopped. I mean, that's what's really driving me crazy is that, like, it can be stopped now. It could have been stopped before. This is why I kept saying, you know, you need to impeach. You need to act, you know, with a lot more uh, determination than you're showing now. None of this wishy-washy, like, wow, it's almost as if Trump isn't really acting like a democratically, you know, elected president. You know, it's almost like he's acting like an agent of a foreign state or someone who's just looking out for himself. You see all these sort of rhetorical flourishes, you know, these, you know, declarations of understatement. They won't just say, like, he's a liar. He's a sadist. He's a traitor. They won't just say it. And they really just need to say it, and then they need to act in the way that you would when you were dealing with that sort of individual as the president of the United States. Yeah, I get really frustrated when I hear people be like, you're the president, act like it. And it's like, you really think, no, he's not going to do that. Like, you don't get that by now. We're how many days into this yeah. thing? Like, you're not going to happen. Like, it's never going to happen. It's not It's not like he's going to wake up and suddenly be normal. It's not going to be normal as long as he's in charge. <laughs> like, yeah. That's the point. Yeah, I mean, he's not. And they're so, I don't understand whether they're just playing dumb or they're genuinely dumb. But either way, they shouldn't be in this job. I mean, I basically come to that conclusion that a large number of reporters should not be working as reporters. Like, they should go move to a different field because they they don't seem to comprehend what's happening or they're giving him cover. And this is a time where we need clarity and truth and, and rigorous reporting. And they're unwilling to provide that. So. Right. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I don't mean to talk about the New York Times every time we talk, but they had that uh, Stephen Miller interview that they had audio of, and apparently then the White House raised a stink, and then they didn't play on one of their podcasts. But I don't know about you, but I thought the rules were that if you speak to a journalist into a microphone on the record, that's you know fair game to be published any and everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. And there, that's another time where they're playing dumb, and I see some reporters, um, the same ones that tend to boost Trump, going along with that, like, oh, no, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean on the record. It does. And they've openly admitted, you know, that they are taking cues from the White House. The White House tells the New York Times what to say. The New York Times prints it. And you can find records of them doing this and admitting it going back years, whether it's their partnership with Steve Bannon with Clinton Cash, or even in, in smaller ways. Like, they did a profile of Tiffany Trump uh, back in 2016. And at the end of the profile, they had to admit 
that they only ran quotes approved by the Trump campaign. They only spoke to people that had been approved by the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign had provided, you know, basically an outline of the piece. And they filled in the blanks and they called it journalism. But it was propaganda. And they have something seriously wrong uh, in their relationship with them. You know, people from the Times harass me or they get their friends to harass me whenever I point this out. But there's such a wealth of evidence. And, you know, Miller is a key person in this. They wrote an incredibly um, flattering op-ed about Miller, saying he was necessary, uh, you know, to a necessary person to contribute to the immigration debate, that he should be deciding the policy. They wrote that and they published it on Holocaust Remembrance Day. They did this praise of a person advocating for ethnic cleansing, advocating for genocide, a person who befriends Nazis. I, I'm sorry, like, they're not stupid at the New York Times. They knew what they were doing by publishing that and by publishing it on that day. You know, they were basically sanctioning Nazism. They were doing a little in-joke, like an incredibly cruel in-joke at anyone who might suffer under this administration, like all these migrant families do, and people in the past. And a lot of people uh, whose you know ancestors died in the Holocaust were furious at the New York Times uh, for doing this. They understood. And the Times tried to deny it. You know, they actually wrote a bunch of nasty stuff about me when I was complaining about it. And then two days later, the New York Times tried to hire Quinn Norton, uh, who is a Nazi sympathizer. You know, she's the one who was friends with the guy with the giant swastika painted on his chest, mm-hmm. and ultimately she did not get the job because, you know, people felt like this was going way too far. And it just leads to this question of why are you trying so hard to do PR for Nazis, to support white supremacists? Like, what's in it for the New York Times? Because the Trump fans are not subscribing to them. You know, they still think it's fake news because Trump's always saying, you know, I hate New York Times, it's fake news even though he loves them. And they're losing their their main audience, which would be sort of anyone on the, like, centrist to progressive spectrum uh, that are repulsed by their embrace of Trump and by their embrace of white supremacy. So it's not serving their financial bottom line. Uh, they're destroying their reputation. And so I can only imagine that there's some sort of either a perk or a kickback that they're getting or some sort of uh, threat that's leveled over their head, or they just have the absolute worst judgment of, like, any newspaper in the history of mankind, in which case, if that's what it is, then, again, go find another line of work. Um, you know, it's, it's just baffling. Well, I mean, I think they're just in love with the access that they get to Trump. I mean, if they stay on his good side or whatever, and at least in private. You know, I, but what does that know. get them, though? No, right, like, exactly. it hurts them financially, it doesn't get them the truth, and it leads to things like breastfeeding babies being ripped from their mothers and put in cages. Mm-hmm. Like, the New York Times helps contribute to that. You know, people like Maggie Haberman with their endless puff pieces and lies, you know, their attempts to cover up the Russia scandal, they helped contribute to that. Some of these kids, you know, who might never see their parents again, might, you know, have had a chance had the New York Times and other media outlets actually vetted Trump, actually done their job, actually told the truth. And so I don't know how those journalists um, and others sleep at night. Like, I just don't know. I would have that on my conscience until the day I died, but I'm not sure they have a conscience to uh, have things rest done in the first place. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think I heard uh, Amy Goodman from Democracy Now! describe that type of thing as the access of evil. Yes, <laughs> there, kind of yeah, absolutely. Clever. That's a great phrase. <laughs> um, but uh, you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, his author- authoritarian leanings, and, you know, that brings us to the meeting with Kim Jong-un uh, that we had. It was, I can't believe it was only a week ago that, that 
that was happening. No it feels like a year, but um, you know, I'm glad we're not having a nuclear war for now. I guess that's good. Um, but I felt like that was still a bad scene. And you know, when when he gets back, he wants people to treat him like you know the Kim's people treat him, which is because they'll be killed if they don't clap hard enough when he's in public. And you know, he wants that for us. And really, it's the only thing that's consistent with him is is admiring of these authoritarian leaders, and it's just the power that they hold, and that's the main thing that that he wants that they that they he doesn't have totally totally yet so yeah absolutely you know like people rightly you know call it acquiescence um after that meeting but you know immediately i was writing it was more than acquiescence it was envy um you know he he wants people to to treat him uh like a dictator like a ruler like he has all-encompassing power and then of course he made that clear after and he does what he always does um you know just to say he's kidding he's not you know that's the same thing he said about Russia, um, you know, when he asked them to give him uh, Hillary Clinton's emails back in July 2015, you know, it's a sort of de facto thing after he accidentally um, blurts out the truth, but you know, I feel like there's kind of a parallel in what happened with the North Korea summit and what's happened with the migrant children this week, which is that, you know, they create a crisis so awful that you're, you're waiting for the absolute worst thing to happen, you know, in the case of North Korea, nuclear war, um, in the case of migrant children, uh, you know, sort of a possibly ethnic cleansing or genocide or the deaths of those children or more children being uh, captured and separated from their parents, you know, and so forth. And then they tamper it down. They do something else. So instead of nuclear war, we're now partnering uh, with one of the most brutal dictators in the world. Instead of murdering the migrant children, we're going to make some sort of half-hearted attempt to reunite these families who never should have been separated to begin with. And then Trump gets praise. He gets praise from media for making a catastrophe into a extremely bad problem, all of which is is created by him and his administration. So he shouldn't be getting any credit. He should just be getting blame. But I think people are kind of locked in this cycle. You know, they're relieved that we're not, you know, nuking each other or something. And that relief is, that relief is so palpable that it blinds their judgment. Um, and they are, you know, giving him credit for things that he, he absolutely deserves nothing but shame and blame for. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great point, too. It's like he, he makes everyone freaked out by, by threatening this horrible thing. And then we're all supposed to be glad that it's a slightly less horrible thing in the end. And it's like it's still worse than it was. Like this is this is still we're still moving the uh, Overton window or whatever that's acceptable. Yeah. Uh, and it's not you know we're, we're we're slowly moving the goalpost down the field here, and we just don't realize it. And we're all thankful that it's not the absolute worst thing. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, get excited though. Space Force is coming, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of vaguely tuned out that announcement. <laughs> it was like just too overwhelmed with the uh, kids separated from parents, but I suppose it's a, you know part of the point of them um, churning out these things. I mean, you know, he is good at that, but yeah, yeah I'll check up on that eventually. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you mentioned something else, uh, kind of going back to the child uh, detention centers, concentration camps, whatever, when they did that tour and they had that mural on the wall of him. What was up with that? That I'm still thinking about that. That's so crazy, and it's like this weird quote from him, and it's like, what are 
are we supposed to do with that? Who is that meant for? Like, what is going yeah. on? Well, like, the, the quote is from The Art of the Deal, which uh, is really disturbing because that's just one of his, you know, his little autobiographical business guide, um, you know, which was ghostwritten by Tony Schwartz, who has mm-hmm. now announced that Trump is a sociopath and that he's known him for 30 years. But, um, you know, I guess, you know, to be fully honest, you know, there were murals of other presidents in that same facility, um, you know, of Obama with quotes, quotes from their time um, in office. But I think it is pointed that Trump is the first thing they see when they open the door. And, you know, that's what I meant by saying that they are taking pride in these brutal uh, and immoral facilities. You know, they're painting it to be like, this is America, and America is Trump, and this is who you look at every day. You are going to look every day at the face of the man who stole you uh, from your parents, and you're supposed to like him. You're supposed to be glad that he's giving you TV and snacks and whatever they think makes up for actual family members. And, you know, it's sick. It, it reminds me very much, um, you know, of things I've seen in authoritarian states, you know, that are plastered with the billboard of the leader um, as children are forced to, you know, work in fields or, um, you know, sell objects on the street to survive. Like, it's it's horrifying, uh, and I'm, you know, real glad that those reporters and, uh, you know, those Democratic um, legislators were able to get in to see it, uh, but it makes me wonder, again, you know, like, what haven't we seen? Like, because I have a feeling that that's really, we, we likely saw one of the nicer uh, facilities, and, um, you know, what's happening to, to the girls and to others, uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right, and, you know, we're, we're seeing things come out now that are just kind of trickling out like some of the kids may have been placed with sex traffickers and you know we're, we're seeing that that you know they may have lost uh, several thousand kids we don't know don't, don't know where they are and you know we're i think we're just oh, you're right we're going to find out more and more horrible things and you know it's not I mean, we're not going to be able to fix like this is like broken for these people like this is like they're for some of these people are never going to be okay because of this you know this isn't a fix and i wish people would would start to realize that when they talk about this like oh we signed this executive order it's all fixed. It's like no, no. The the, the no. damage is ongoing and continuous. So yeah, they they'll never they'll never recover. You know, from this, and we've had so many national discussions about trauma. Um, you know, about things like rape, about abandonment in the last few years that you would hope people would grasp this. Um, you know, one narrative that's sort of being put out there that I really don't like is this sort of like this is how you create a terrorist. You know, these kids are going to to grow up and they're going to attack America. I feel like that's something that possibly the Trump's camp might want us um, to think. You know, and of course it's like you know I, I would be furious at America if I were them. But what I've seen, you know. I have friends who who grew up in war zones or who grew up in exile um, and were psychologically traumatized. Um, and they are, you know, right now speaking out about this in a very forthright way, saying, yes, you know, these children will never recover. You know, yes, this is going to haunt them forever. Um, but it also, you know, it, it gave them insight into it. You know, often the people who were most accurate in their warnings about Trump uh, were people who grew up in authoritarian states or who were exiled from them. Or, you know, a friend of mine who's a scholar who's from Bosnia, um, you know, and grew up as a child in war-torn Bosnia, they understand that the worst can happen, you know, that 
this cruelty is unlimited and that what you think is unfathomable it is real and it's not history it's not just like what happened in the Nazi era or the Soviet era it continues to today and it could happen anywhere and it can happen quickly um, so they all understand that but you know it, it breaks my heart like it's of all the things that have happened um, under this administration like this is the one that that's just hardest um, to sort of fathom you know because it's, it's just such a it's so preventable there's no point to it beyond just sadism and cruelty I mean they say the point is is deterrence but that's not even accurate I don't think this is going to work because people who are coming here are doing it out of desperation you know they're fleeing drug cartels and violence and wars uh, they're going to come anyway and then they're going to be punished for that and it's I, I don't know I mean they have to get this guy out of office they have to get people like Sessions and Miller um, out of office because the more they consolidate this power uh, these methods will not just be limited to how they treat migrants from Central America you know we're already hearing them talking about stripping citizenship away from naturalized mm -hmm. um, Americans and I think they may even extend that just to Americans that they don't like they'll do things that are typical of authoritarian states like fabricate crimes um, you know plant drugs on people whatever they need to do to get people who they find problematic out of the way and you know I'm not saying it's going to happen like next week or next month but it is what will happen over time uh, if they're not stopped now and and I just wish that people who did have the power to stop them grasped that yeah absolutely and you know it's like even if like the just sheer horror of the thing isn't enough to move you realize that it's a, it doesn't stop there just because you happen to be a white person who was born here uh, don't don't think you're safe from this uh, just in case you don't care about the the children in, in, in whatever fashion that's happening but you know what I mean like they're gonna do this to them uh, yeah guess who's next it's you. It's everyone. We're all. They're coming for everybody. If if that you know if that type of thing happens, I don't think that's alarmist to say. It's just the it's just the way things go in these situations, as you pointed out. It's just one step along the way. So yeah, you know, and it's frightening. Um, it's frightening to be a parent in this environment to know what your children might be growing up into. Whether it's going to be you know conscription for war. Um, you know, people like us who've been speaking out about this. You know, I do hope people. People understand that. I mean, that's one of the things that's kind of mystified me about the GOP, because a lot of people kind of dismiss them as like, okay, they're careerists, they're opportunists, they're doing this for money, they're doing this for short-term gain. And you see people retiring, you know, this massive wave of mm -hmm. GOP retirement, um, the record number, because they want to get out of this, and they just basically want to take the money and run. But I feel like they, they must know that they might be okay, but their kids are not going to be okay. They're going to inherit this society. Their grandkids are going to inherit this society, and they're not going to grow up safe. They're not going to grow up in a democracy uh, with rule of law, and I'm not saying r remotely that we were some ideal place before. You know, we were a place where the rule of law was routinely abused, but we're not, you know, we were not an authoritarian state. We were not um, a kleptocracy in the way that I certainly think we are now, um, and they won't have that safety. So you would think that just out of self-preservation, 
and um, for the people that they love, that they would act to end this, um, or at least to curb it. And instead, they're just his little lapdogs, you know? Even the ones who really talk a big game, people like McCain, uh, they won't vote for it. They won't mm-hmm. vote to actually uh, shut this down and start to turn things around. It's really on the people of the United States, and I think that's why everyone's so tired, is we've all been filling in for our officials, filling in for journalists who've screwed up on the job, like filling in in all these um, positions of civic duty. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for people working nine-to-five jobs and taking care of kids and doing all the things we do in our lives to have to do that. And I'm very grateful that people in the United States are doing this. I think public reaction has actually been very strong. But, you know, it's it's unfair. I just, you know, I wish they would just take, you know, some of the burden um, off of the rest of us. You know, there's civic obligation and then there's, like, civic exhaustion. And I think that's the point that we're at. Yeah, and you keep mentioning Jeff Flake and, and John McCain for good reason because they have been the ones who ever so tepidly are speaking out. But if they know better, they should do better. They should, you know, th- it's on them. I don't expect Steve King of Iowa to, like, rise up and in protest tomorrow. But, like, John McCain, yeah, buddy. Like, and, and I don't get it for him either. Like, he's, you know, not no offense or anything, but he's not going to be around much longer. And wouldn't you want your final act to be uh, final service to your country of, of kind of ending this? You know, wouldn't this yes. be a nice way to go out, you know? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, if I were him, the greatest service I feel like he could do now, you know, aside from voting, um, which, of course, would be great, but sure. just simply revealing the truth. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who does know a lot about Trump and Russia. Um, you know, he's someone who knows more about the former Soviet Union than most senators. Like, I remember back when I was studying Uzbekistan, John McCain was one of the very few uh, American politicians who really understood how mm-hmm. bad that government was, who spoke out very vehemently against authoritarianism, who spoke out about human rights. I, I think it's a side of John McCain that people don't necessarily know about. And I'm not saying I'm some big John McCain fan, because I disagree with, like, the vast majority of policies he's enacted and things mm-hmm. he's voted for. But I do think he has an understanding of what's occurred. And he was very early in saying that, you know, this is not just a bad GOP candidate. This is someone who possibly committed treason. This is someone who is hooked up with crime. And this is someone who needs to be investigated. And he, he would just lay out the truth. Like, it's, it's interesting to me that there are these senators who, in 2016, were very adamant that the public needed to know the truth. And it's since gone kind of silent on it. You know, one is John McCain, who, who does still talk now and then, and then the other um, is Harry Reid, who is like, if I made a list of people who I think did a good job in 2016 that were, like, elected officials, the entire list is Harry Reid. Like, that's it. He tried so hard to get Comey to reveal what was going on with the FBI investigation of Trump, and he was very forthright about the threats that we faced from Trump and Russia. Um, and then he has also gone quiet, and, you know, he has cancer, and I think that that's, that's possibly why, is that he's ailing, but I'm like, come on, man, like, just just write it all out and drop it on the internet. Like, the public, and, you know, Harry Reid kept saying, the public needs to know. The public deserves to know, and I wish that they would just tell us, so that we have an official, um, basically confirming the things that we already suspect and know, and giving us more to work with and to kind of unify, because I think this sort of confusion about, you know, what are the facts, and what did Mueller find, and these little tidbits of information thrown out and often being dismissed as partisan in nature. Like, can you imagine if the two of them wrote something together? Like, mm-hmm. that would have a momentous effect. And I kept hoping for something like that um, in the period immediately after the election and just not really not really getting it. You know, so 
hoping that that bipartisan investigation, or nonpartisan as it really should be, uh, would, would bring some results. But instead, it's been 18 months, and we've just seen a consolidation of power instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, and hey, hey, Harry Reid told us about the aliens before he told us about that. So, I mean, geez, what's Harry going on? Harry Reid knows all kinds of good shit, man. <laughs> like, Harry Reid needs to just, like, I hope he's spending his, his time, you know, in recovery or whatnot, like, writing the tell-off. Because he knows about the aliens, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm cool with that. It's just been such a crazy year that, like, I remember last year it, like, ended with, oh, yeah, and aliens might be real. And everyone just kind of shrugged because we yeah, were exactly. so damn tired that we were like, okay, fine. Like, <laughs> great. There's, Whatever, there's aliens are real. I, mean, I can't handle this right now. <laughs> I was just like, well, they have the aliens fucking do something about the, sorry. <laughs> do something about the, the Russia investigation and the takeover of our country because clearly Congress is not being very effective. Maybe we'll have better luck with the alien takeover. I don't know, you know. We're hoping for strange things yeah. um, in this administration. Oh, yeah, strange times. But, um, well, you mentioned Comey, and he was on his book tour here. Um, how are you feeling about Comey these days? I feel like uh, his book, His book, A Higher Royalty? Yeah, yeah I'm not, not a fan. Not a um, fan. Well, his book came out on the same day as mine, oh. and I was very tempted to write something like on Twitter, you know, if you want to buy a book, buy a new book today by somebody who did not tilt the election for Donald Trump and here's mine but then I realized he's actually on my publishing label that's why I was asking you about it because I was like flat iron flat wait a second <laughs> she's my little, my little buddy um, yeah so you know so you have nothing uh, bad I, to I, say about him right no, I, mean, I, I think there's no problem I don't think flat iron cares but you know he's a major public figure I'm going to say what I want and what I want to say is that he was a really terrible head of the FBI I, I don't think that means he should have been fired by Trump because Trump admitted he was firing him to in order to obstruct the Russia investigation to get Comey off his back about Flynn and about Trump's own involvement and all these things. So he should not have been fired. But, you know, what's very interesting to me is kind of looking at um, Mueller's tenure and what Mueller was looking at uh, in the early, like, 2010s um, before he left. Because he gave all these speeches that were basically about this, you know, nexus between organized crime, corporate interests, uh, and politics, and about how there were new alliances, transnational alliances, between all these different groups that have brought, um, you know, criminal syndicates into mainstream life in a way that we've never seen before. And he warned about how profoundly it was going to affect our country and threaten our democracy, and it basically seemed as if he was predicting everything that happened uh, in the 2016 election and with Trump back in 2011. And that's also the year that, according to the SEAL dossier, the FBI had begun, um, you know, looking at Trump as a Russian asset, like formally labeling him as such. So I'm kind of, and so then Mueller leaves in 2013, and Comey comes in, and I'm just like, what the hell were you doing? Like, what did you do to stop this? Like, you had all the same information. You had tools at your disposal. You had, you were dealing with a newly aggressive Russia. They were invading Crimea. They were hacking the shit out of us. Like, they were hacking so many different um, divisions of the U.S. government, as well as our grid and private 
at companies like Yahoo. He knew. He knew what a major threat this was. And he says, you know, at least according to the emails uh, released last week, that it was out of fear of public reaction from basically just like asshole Republicans, Republicans who themselves have no regard for facts or law or civic duty. He was so afraid of them that he decided to, you know, go after Hillary Clinton and, and make sure everybody knew he was looking into her so that he didn't seem biased. And I'm like, are you, you know, you're that afraid of like Mitch McConnell? Like how in the world were you tasked with battling, you know, the world's most feared mobsters when you are this much of like a wuss? I mean, honestly, that was my reaction. And while, of course, it's bad that Comey was fired, I feel like Mueller is very capable, you know, and I feel like Mueller has no interest in uh, showboating or getting media attention or getting acclaim. He really does seem to genuinely want to do the job. I think he needs to do it a lot faster, but <laughs> at least he seems interested in the end goal. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what the deal is with Comey. I, I think he was... A, a pretty terrible FBI director and that that became clear more in retrospect. Um, I don't think he necessarily had malicious intent, but I think that he was incompetent in ways that, that we just didn't know about. Um, and that also the New York branch of the FBI, they, they I think, did have uh, malicious intent, and he should have been dealing with that, with the bad actors within that department. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, if he was going to send that letter to Congress with the Anthony Weiner thing, he, he should have at least signed simultaneously said we're also investigating Donald Trump also but BTW <laughs> yeah I mean it wouldn't have been this big shocker that's the thing that's so weird it's like you know Harry Reid had written two public uh -huh. letters to Comey you know that he printed online saying please Comey you have to tell people before they vote what the deal is with Trump and Russia and also at that time you know there were tons of articles about Trump's relationship with Russia you know I know because I wrote some of them but also you know they were in this is a topic of the debate Hillary Clinton, you know, campaigned about this. She spoke about this in speeches. She talked to Trump directly about him being a Putin puppet on the stage. So if Comey were to come out and confirm, um, you know, that, that Trump had an illicit relationship with the Kremlin and with the Russian mafia and that his campaign had been uh, illicitly involved, it wouldn't have been like this huge, shocking thing in the way that people kind of try to make it look like now. Like, they try to make it look like this was all, you know, buried at the time. It really wasn't. It was actively being suppressed and played down, but it was out there, and it would have really, really helped um, that he decided to go the other direction instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, on a different note, I saw you are getting into the podcasting games. I'm excited about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm, I'm so shocked by how many people retweeted that tweet where I didn't the, I, I had no idea because, um, yeah, I'm doing a podcast um, called Gaslit Nation uh, with my friend um, Andrea Halupa, who also studies authoritarian states. Um, you know, her specialty is uh, Ukraine um, and, you know, Soviet history. And, you know, she's also interested in contemporary American stuff. And she's been somebody who's, you know, been, um, like, we've been hashing out Trump and the election for, like, two years. And so we finally decided, like, you know, we should do a podcast. And we're working with Dean Magazine. Uh, which is great um, because often, you know, women are left out of this kind of uh, political, you know, <laughs> punditry game. And we're doing it uh, twice a month, kind of trying to go deep into a lot of these um, structural issues behind uh, Trump's administration and campaign. It's not going to be a kind of like reaction to the, you know, news of the minute, but, you know, looking back in time, um, giving some context and history, and hopefully it'll be good. I feel a little <laughs> nervous now because I think expectations are high 
of people are like, oh, thank God. And I'm like, oh, God, this is just like a twice monthly podcast. <laughs> Don't go too crazy here, but, but it should be good. We, we, we'll see. I think it's supposed to come out July 9th. July 9th. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> That'll be good. Awesome. We just recorded it like oh. two days ago. Cool. So. Now, you, you guys are in different cities, right? Yeah, yeah. She came to St. Louis uh, to do it. And then uh, she lives in New York. And, you know, I'm going to head down to New York probably in August um, to do it. And because it is this, you know, it's basically work that we hope stands the test of time. Um, you know, we can kind of space them out, record them in advance, and then drop them. Like the, you know, the first couple are kind of an overlook of uh, 2016 and this this process of gaslighting, like how propaganda was spread, how how um, you know it was made to be effective, and you know how did this campaign play out? We focus a lot on Manafort because we know that our podcast is going to drop um, right before his trial, and also Andrea is an expert on Ukraine and. You know, for her, the minute that Manafort was selected as Trump's, um, you know, campaign advisor, she was like, oh, my God, like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, mm-hmm. this guy is probably working for the Kremlin. She saw it very early, and people thought she was crazy. You know, they wanted to, like, give her an intervention. Like, they really thought she lost her mind, but, but she was absolutely right. And that was also what alarmed me as well. I mean, not exactly because of Russia, but because he was a well-known mobster and dictator lackey. Like, if you study human rights... Um, you know, you knew about Paul Manafort, and it just kind of confirmed in my once real America like autocrat, which, you know, was evident also from Trump's speeches, but it was like, okay, he's now obtained uh, institutional support and advice from someone who really knows how to do that, how to take a democracy and turn it into a, a kleptocracy or an autocracy. Um, and that was what I think, you know, Paul Manafort's role was. But then, of course, it turned out to be even worse than that because the relationship is so deep um, and mm. so complicated. Is in deep debt with Oleg Deripaska. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a train wreck. It's amazing to me how someone who's led this life of crime consequence-free can be just so inept at the most basic level, like converting Word documents to PDFs, like, you know, intimidating witnesses while under house arrest. And maybe that's why. Maybe it's because he's been able to act with such impunity for so long that he just assumes nothing will affect him, not his massive debt, you know, not the fact that he's put himself out in the spotlight. And, you know, one thing Andrea points out in our podcast is how he basically was um, indicating that certain states were, uh, you know, rigged and going, going to go for Trump. I mean, he obviously doesn't use the word rigged, uh, but, you know, tw- tweets these sort of cryptic remarks shortly before the election um, that kind of, in retrospect, look, look damning, look like he can't resist bragging that they were pulling this little operation off. And so I think that's his weakness. That's the weakness of all of them is this vanity that comes from living life consequence-free. Right. Right. Well, absolutely. Do you think he's just a man of four? Do you think he's hoping for a presidential pardon at this point? Or what do you think his hope is? I mean... Oh, yeah. I think he is. I mean, uh-huh. I really keep saying he's going to flip. I find that very hard to imagine. I mean, I think he's kind of a, you know, old school, mm-hmm. America kind of guy. I think he's placing his bets, um, and he's placed his bet on consolidation of power for Trump. You know, and Trump is sending out that signal uh, through pardoning all of these incredibly horrible people. And, of course, people like um, Scooter Libby, you know, who were indicted for similar reasons. You know, that's a signal to Manafort and to Michael Cohen um, and to others to not rat him out, to not give out the game that Trump mm-hmm. still thinks he's 
going to win. And that might just be bravado because Trump always acts like he's going to win. You know, that's a lifelong character trait. Uh, and Manafort also does. But I don't know. I mean, if he were to flip, you know, I don't know what you would do. I guess maybe witness protection because so many people would want to kill oh, him. Know. You know, Americans, Russians, like everyone would want to kill Paul Manafort that I have the feeling he'd be more likely to just refuse to cooperate and uh-huh. hope that we become a full-blown dictatorship and that he'll be rewarded for his loyalty. Yeah, Michael Flynn, Michael Cohen, all those guys, yeah, those those guys are flipping. I don't think Paul, Paul Manafort is scared of way more scary people than Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I don't know about Cohen. I'm, I'm still trying to Oh, you don't think of, so? I, I'm not sure. I huh. feel like he might be front and I feel like he hmm. be like putting on a kind of He's playing both sides, basically, like hmm. trying to seem cooperative. Now he's condemning Trump's policies to try to be nice. Which was like, hilarious. <laughs> it's yeah. like, okay, dude, I mean, a little late. <laughs> brutal asshole. You know, he's this dude who's known for, like, threatening people all the time on Trump's behalf, and now he's suddenly, like, concerned for the welfare of children. I mean, maybe. Maybe it's just such a horrific policy sure, that even sure. Michael Cohen yeah. um, is objecting. But, yeah, I think it's hard to tell uh, with him. You know, I, I think he's, he's weighing options in his mind as well Mm -hmm, for sure um now i saw you've also got uh two book two more books coming out uh so what what can you tell us about those (laughs) no because i'm not quite sure uh what i'm gonna say (laughs) that's the thing you know i'm very happy about that i have a two book deal um with Flatiron. the second book i I definitely don't know what's going to be in it because it's going to be written after the 2020 election Mm. we have one um so that's really a blank slate the first one uh you know is going to go into the issues that i talk about routinely um you know democracy and the shift to autocracy and kind of a a long-term view of how we got there um as a country you know and how we can get out, um, you know, mixed with uh, different components. I mean, I'm like a weird writer. I mean, this drove my dissertation advisor crazy because, like, I don't outline. I don't plan. Um, you know, I just sit and I write. Uh, and, you know, people who, who trust me know they'll get a good product in the end. They know that it'll work out fine. Um, but they also know that's just, like, the way my mind works. And so, you know, I fully trust that, you know, I've been writing so much on these topics that it, it'll come to me. Like, it'll, I know I know what I want to say in my mind. Like, I'm always writing the outline out in my mind, but if I were to try to explain it, I think I'd either, you know, do myself a disservice or just not, um, you know, capture it well or put out spoilers or I don't know. It'll be cool, though. I promise you it'll be cool. Okay. That's really all I can All right, I'm, I'm in. I'll, I'll read whatever it is. But, <laughs> but yeah, I often think uh, I don't even know if I could write anything if we still had to use typewriters because, you know what I mean? Like, you really have to know what you're going to say before you start clicking and clacking. But, you yeah. know. Yeah. computer, it's like copy, paste, cut, edit. I don't know. It's going here, it's going yeah, there. No, I write really weird. I always write, like, um, you know, I write the drafts kind of as it goes. You know, I don't do, like, a first draft and then reread it and then edit it. I, like, do a, a paragraph and then I, like, rewrite it until it's perfect and mm-hmm. then I just keep going. And, you know, and of course, in the end, you go back and you fix things and you make sure it flows and everything. But that's always how I worked. And in school, I remember having to, like, fake a bad first draft. Like, I'd write the whole paper and then they're like, we want the first draft we can give you feedback and so i'd write something with like spelling errors and stupid sentences
sentences in it so that the teacher it has something to do with God. This sounds so obnoxious. I'm like, listening to myself, sorry. But, um, but that's just, you know, this is uh, the way I work. Like, everyone works differently, and, you know, hopefully they'll be uh, accepting of the way I work uh, as we roll along. Because obviously this first book was totally random and weird. I mean, it was a compilation of essays. Mm-hmm. It's a, a very different format for right, me. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, you're going on vacation next week. Where are you going? Oh, driving uh, Rocky Mountains and hopefully go out to Moab and Utah. And yeah, like my kids have never seen mountains before, and um, you know they've seen some kind of like deserty kind of landscape. I've never seen um, you know that part of Utah before, and you know we're going to basically go see some national parks um, before they get destroyed by the Trump administration. And I'm hoping to take like a, a bit of a break from the news, but obviously it's you know this is a very difficult time um, to do that, you know, because I'm concerned about the migrant kid situation. It's not like I can kind of turn off the part of my brain um, that that worries about that. But I am glad to see that, you know, so many people are, um, you know, taking charge on this issue and really working uh, to try to help them and on other things. So, you know, I'm going to keep saying, like, take your days off. Like, you always cancel your vacations <laughs> because, you know, something happens. Someone always gets fired or some horrible thing. Like, I just know they're going to, like, fire Rosenstein or something on Friday. Like, mm-hmm. I just know it. Just to, fuck, you know, just to mess with my uh, <laughs> vacation. But, um, you know, I think it's necessary. You can probably hear the burnout in my voice. Oh, <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Well, hey, <laughs> thank uh, you. yeah, thank you for your work. And, uh, yeah, keep doing what you're doing, but don't wear yourself out for sure. But, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so uh, take, a, take it easy. Have a good vacation and have a good night. Oh, thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Oh, no problem. Thanks.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.